turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, a passage we looked at this morning briefly, John 10. And I want to go back there and look at several things and then look at some other passages also. The, uh, after the sermon this morning, I was asked several good questions. And I want to kind of try to answer those a little bit as we also look at this outline. Uh, two, two or three, three different people, I guess, came up and asked me different questions, but they were all uh, very pertinent to what we're talking about. Uh, one asked me, uh, after we got home this afternoon, I'm not going to use names or anything, but, uh, but one, one person asked me, is it not possible, because I was talking about this experience of my own, where I came to that point under Deany Chimes on that night where I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt God was dealing my life. Is it not possible that in some people's lives there is a progression toward that? There is a gradual moving toward that where God brings about new life in a person and it's not the dramatic sudden thing. And at some point they come to the point and they say, I, just, I know I'm a Christian. I know I've trusted Christ. I know that I'm in Christ. But it wasn't a sudden, dramatic, one-time thing. And the answer to that is absolutely sure that's, that can be the case. You, you don't base your, your assurance on, I can, you know, and you've heard evangelists say this, and they are absolutely wrong. You've heard evangelists say, well, you, if you can't go back to that one point at that one time at that one place and nail a stake in the ground and say, that's where I was saved, then you're not saved. That's not true. I know people that have grown up and the Spirit of God has worked in their life over a period of time and they know that they've trusted Christ and all the fruit of the Spirit is present in their life right now. And that's the real sign of a believer is, is the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit being demonstrated in their life. All through Scripture, there is never once that I can find, if you can find one, call me and we'll straighten it out or I'll, I'll be corrected. But I can't find anywhere in Scripture where the Scripture points to a past experience to say that's where you find your assurance. It's always in the present. Are you walking with Christ? Is God working in your life? Are you learning new spiritual truths every day? Go to 1 John. Go to what Pat read earlier out of, out of Romans. Those are, those are present experience things, present time things where you can have assurance that God is at work in your life. And so that's important to understand. It's not just a, okay, I can name day, place, time, and prayer that I prayed 25, 30 years ago or 30 days ago. It's what's going on in your life. And if it's not going on today, you can't have any assurance that you really are saved. Now, the second question that was asked of me is, can we not as Christians stray away and yet come back? And do we at that point we stray away lose our salvation? No, you do not. And yes, you can stray away. Uh, I've done that. You've done that. We do that every day in minor ways in, in all of our lives where we move away from, from being all that we're supposed to be. We're, not, we're never perfectly obedient in this life. And so there are those moments of carnality, you could almost call them, although it's not becoming a carnal Christian where you're just always living in carnality living in sin, loving sin. If you're living in sin and loving sin, you have no assurance that you belong to Christ. If you're living in known sin and you know that it's disobedience to God and, and you're saying, look, I know, I, don't, I know God doesn't like this. I know God uh, is against this. I know this is against God's word, but I'm so happy in it. I have no desire to get out of it. 
then you have no assurance of your salvation. Remember, you need to reconsider whether you ever knew Christ or not. But we do have times of, of disobedience. We have times of struggle, and that's certainly okay. Another person asked me about my own experience I shared this morning about being 12 and, and coming to a realization at 19 at the University of Alabama that I was not a Christian, that I'd done all the, quote, right things that everybody tells you to do. You pray the prayer, you go through baptism, you join the church, you walk the aisle, that all those things were done, but yet there was no salvation there. And, and why was that? Was I not sincere when I prayed? I want you to know when I was 12 years old, I was as sincere as any 12-year-old could be. I meant what I said. Uh, I, but I went forward not because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I went forward because of peer pressure. Uh, my friends were doing it. And mom and dad kind of thought it's time, you know. And a lot of children make, quote, professions of faith because mom and dad really want them to say they love Jesus and they want them to show that, and so they kind of urge them along to do it. And, and they make those decisions, quote, unquote, based on what somebody else wants them to do or, or what they feel like is the right thing to do, but it's not out of a conviction of the Holy Spirit. We have to remember, we can never forget that no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. No man, no woman ever comes to the Father unless God is at work in their life, bringing conviction, bringing an understanding of sin, and, and bringing them to that. And, and that's what happened to me at the University of Alabama that didn't happen to me when I was 12 years old. There was no working of the Spirit. And you cannot be saved because you say a prayer. You cannot be saved because you walk an aisle. You cannot be saved because you're baptized. Those, are, those would become works if that's how we were saved. We are saved by the power of the Spirit of God at work within our life, by the convicting Holy Spirit showing us our sin and drawing us to Christ. We, we sang songs tonight about grace, and I, I, I love to sing about grace. You know I love to sing about grace. I look, my, my, one of my, somebody said this morning, I must have a list this long of favorite hymns, you know, favorite songs, and that's probably true. Every time I hear one, oh, that's one of my favorites. But Amazing Grace really is one of my favorites. And, and you know, the thing about it is, though, most of us sing that song, but we're really not amazed by grace. Sometimes we're not even dumbfounded by it. We, we're just kind of sing it, and it sounds good, and we know it's the right thing to say. But the problem is we never are really amazed by grace until we see the depth of our own sin. We really aren't. Until we see that we really are sinners standing in need of the grace of God and there's nothing I can do. There's no prayer I can pray. There's no water I can go through. There's nothing I can do to make myself right with God except when His Holy Spirit applies that amazing grace to my life. And wow, I'm converted by the power of the living God. You see, we really have, even though we'll talk about it sometimes, that salvation is of the Lord, which Jonah said. Salvation is a work of Christ on the cross, applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. Even though we say all the right words, sometimes we act as though salvation really is my doing. It's what I did. It's what I accomplished. It's what I was smart enough, good enough, whatever to do, and we don't really realize it is, a, it is a supernatural work of God through His Holy Spirit. It is God touching your life in such a radical way that you are changed from what you were into what you are, becoming what you will be in Jesus Christ. So it's so important we understand that. And, and, and it's the power of God at work. And if there's no... Now, 
some people have the conviction of the Spirit at a young age. I don't doubt that at all. But we have to be very careful that it's not parent pressure or peer pressure just wanting to do that thing. And, and parents so they can say, okay, I can check that one off. My mom and dad thought that. They thought, wow, Bill's been baptized. We, we were worried about him. And, and now he's been baptized, he's saved, and, and that we're secure. And we went on. That was all that was ever said about it. But that's not the key. The key is, has the Spirit of God supernaturally done a work in your life so that, so that suffering and, and things do build perseverance and build hope and build assurance because you know that you're in Christ. I, I would go so far as to say is, based on what Pat read earlier, that if you're not experiencing some adversity, some perseverance, some struggles in the Christian life, then you might wonder whether or not you're a believer. Uh, if life is all cheery and rosy and everything's fine, then you're not getting the promises that Jesus gave us. And we ought to look at that. And I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I say that also somewhat seriously. So these are important questions, and it's important to realize that salvation is not a work we do. It's not something we accomplish, but rather it is what God does by his Holy Spirit. And so we start, and I hope you can see this. If you can't, take your Bible and turn to John 10, 27 through 30. We read that this morning, but I want you to hear it again. Well, let's back up even. Let's back up to 22. And at the day, excuse me, at the time the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's names, name, these testify to me or of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The term eternal security is commonly used for the doctrine of eternal life. It has a, a disadvantage of not being a biblical term in the sense that you don't find eternal security or the security of the believer in the Bible itself. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not the teaching of the Bible. As I put down here, another example is the Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, but that does not negate the fact that we believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that there is a Godhead, one God, three persons in that Godhead. Now, we can't always understand that. We can't always put that together and, and come up with some kind of cute little illustration about it. I can't. That really fully pictures it, but we know it to be true because we see it taught in the scripture even though the term itself is never used. So several things I want you to see that are very important. First of all, I want us to look at the biblical evidence. The biblical evidence of eternal security or eternal life. First of all, there, there's several things. We're going to run through these. Uh, and So I hope you take notes, fill in the blanks, and you can look at the scripture, look them up later if you will. But A, under biblical evidence, the believer is secure because of the purpose of the Father. 
The believer is secure because of the purpose of the Father. That goes back to Romans 8. We talked about briefly Romans 8 this morning. And we listened to what Paul said there in reading that whole golden chain of salvation that is often referred to. But in verse 28, that verse that everybody knows and misunderstands much of the time, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Most people want to stop it right there. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. Well, that's not an absolute promise just across the board. There is the caveat that follows that. He causes all things to work for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what is His purpose? What is the purpose of God as we see it in Scripture? Well, the first purpose is is to save a people for himself for all eternity. It goes down to verse 30 there, that last part that we talked about, those he glorified. He begins with talking about those whom he foreknew, and literally that word there means those on whom he set his heart. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, these he called, and these he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And those are emphatic statements. You could translate that and, and interpret that as him saying, those whom he foreknew and only those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And the ones who he conformed to become, uh, he predestined to come, become conformed to the image of his son, them and them alone, uh, did he predestine to be that way? And them, them and them alone did he call. And only the called did he justify. And only the justified did he glorify. There is, a, there is a chain there. The Puritans, I love their imagery many times. But the Puritans call this the golden chain of salvation that is unbreakable and un, unendable and imperishable. The golden chain of salvation that stretches from eternity past to the very mind of God to eternity future when God glorifies his people. That's God's purpose. To save a people for himself for all eternity. Uh, them he glorified. In God's purpose, see, I, didn't, I really can't see that back there. Eternity goes there. I've already used that. Can't see my own outline on that back wall. In, in God's purpose, from beginning to end, no one who is saved is ever lost again. There it is, saved. No one who is saved is ever lost again. And there's, a, there's, several, there's many scriptures to indicate that, but I'll give you just a couple here. First of all, 1 Timothy 1, 9, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 1, 9. Paul says, Timothy, who has saved us, that is, God has saved us in Christ Jesus, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's, that's Paul saying to Timothy, if he, has say, if he is the one who has saved us and he is the one who has called us, then he is at work to protect us in him and grant us eternal life in him for all of eternity on the basis of his purpose, his own purpose, and his grace. It's the work of God. The second is in John 6. We looked at that this morning. He said, this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I mean, there's this, there's this imagery of Jesus actively working in your life and in my life. And we need to understand that, and we need to see that from the very beginning. The second biblical evidence for the security of the believer is the believer is secure because of the power of the Father. Because of the power of the Father. Again, we, we alluded to this verse and hit it briefly this morning. But 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Uh, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. For you who are protected, who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time or in the last time. The word protected there, and I just had that there, okay? The word protected there in the Greek text literally means or literally says who are constantly being guarded by the power of God. There is that continuous action. There is that continuous working. God is guarding you. God is, God is protecting you. God is watching over you. And so the obvious question that comes out of that is this. Is any inferior power able to take you from God? Is any inferior power able to to take you from God now some are quick to say well yes but don't forget when Paul says that I mean when Peter says that who are protected by the power of God through faith that faith is involved there 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 must be a, a continuation of faith and so you ask the question what about the statement through faith does that mean that we must keep on believing absolutely yes perseverance as we said this morning is evidence of a past event or evidence of a past work in your life and what what God is saying through Peter here is we are kept by God's power he is watching over us but he guarantees the faith if we're a child of his he protects us he preserves us in that faith that's a great tremendous promise and one example that I like to use is is Peter when he when he was walked out on the water to meet Jesus you know it was it was amazing you had you had Peter there, and, and the storm is going, and Jesus calms it, or it's still going in this particular instance, but, but Peter says, if you're Christ, if you're really Jesus, let me walk out to you. And what does Jesus say? He says, come ahead, come ahead. And so Peter, old bold Peter, you know, I, I want to be so much like Peter some of the time. He steps out of the boat and steps on the water, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's walking toward him. What in the world's happening? He's walking on the water. And there's waves all around him, and the wind's blowing. And he looks down, he takes his eyes off of Christ, and he looks down at the water, and what happens? He starts sinking, starts going under. Now, Jesus didn't say, you dumb Peter. He could have. You have let your faith slide. Get up out of that water. Get some more faith. Work hard at it. Try. Flap your hands. Try to swim. Do something. He didn't do that. He restored his faith by reaching down and taking him by the hand and picking him up and establishing him back on the water. That's what the promise of God is. 
when it says we are kept by his power. He, he doesn't believe for us. We have to believe, but he guards our faith and he restores our faith even when it's wavering. A third thing about evidence of our security in Christ is what I would call the believer secure because of the promise of the Son. The promise of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Again, in John 10, those verses we said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No, not one of them, no, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, I don't know about you, when I hear my Lord saying these words, my sheep hear my voice and they follow. I know them. I have an intimate relationship with them. And I know them and they follow me. And I give life to them, eternal life to them. And they'll never, ever perish. I think that's pretty good. Kind of makes me feel protected, doesn't it, you? And, and you know, the, the thing we need to understand is this is a promise. It is not a provisional statement. Jesus doesn't say there, I give eternal life to the sheep, and if they're good sheep, and if they're, they don't bah a lot, and if they don't, you know, that's the way a sheep gripes, I would assume, or complains, or whatever. <laughs> if they don't wander off too much, if they don't put themselves in danger too often, then I'll let them have eternal life. He didn't say that. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And when my sheep hear my voice, they follow me. You know, I, I love reading Philip Keller's stuff. I hadn't read it in years. But I remember Philip Keller who wrote A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm and some other things like that. Uh, Philip Keller said, you know, it's an amazing thing over in the Middle East, even today, where the sheep herders are out gathering and, and feeding their flocks in the fields. And, and they'll get out in the fields and they'll, they'll start eating the grass and they'll just kind of all mingle together. But when it's time to go back to the fold, when it's time to go back to the barn... A shepherd will speak his and call his sheep and just the tonation of his voice those sheep perk up and they follow that shepherd another shepherd and all the other sheep that belong to another shepherd they just keep eating the grass until their shepherd calls out for them and then they follow him because they know his voice that's what Jesus said if you're my sheep you know my voice and I know you and you hear my voice, and you follow me, and I give eternal life to you, and, and you will never, ever lose it. And, and to kind of correct something I said this morning a little bit, eternal life is not just life everlasting. It's not just life that never ends. But eternal life, I mean, even, even to an extent, in a sense, the unsaved have that. There is eternal punishment. There is eternal hell for the unbeliever. That is clear from Scripture. There's not a annihilation there's not a soul sleep for the unbeliever there is a eternal everlasting punishment according to scripture but but this type of life this is a life that literally, literally carries with it the knowledge of God Jesus said that in, in John 17 one, uh, 3 as he prayed for his church he prayed for you and me he said father you know you've been in me and I'm in you and I just pray lord that they will know you that's the essence of the promise, that's the essence of salvation. Life in the knowledge and the presence 
of God. In that passage that Jesus uses, though, he also uses the strongest negative in the Greek language. It's really a double negative. It is basically, could be translated, they shall by no means perish. I mean, it's an emphatic thing. Jesus is saying, let me tell you something. Here's the fact. If you're my sheep, you will never perish. You will continue in faith. You will continue trusting. You will continue in a desire for obedience until the day you die. There is no ending. I think I, I appreciated that so much. And my friend Michael Spencer who just died. I, I watched him through the last four months go through the horrors of, of just enormous cancer that had attacked literally every part of his body, his brain, his lungs, his colon, his, his, uh, his, his liver. I mean, every, everywhere in his body just about there was cancer. And, and I saw that happen, and I, I, I watched him, and I talked to him several times during that time, and his faith was stronger in that than it was away from it. You know why? Because he knew the shepherd. He heard the shepherd's voice. And the shepherd was there protecting him. I mean, everybody would say, man, don't you, you know, how can you, some people ask the question, how could, how could a loving God allow someone to have cancer like that that just ravages their body? God is a loving God who sees you through those things in the most difficult of circumstances. So the promise of the son is that no one will snatch him out of my hand. Now I realize some people say, oh, but wait a minute, no one can snatch you out of their hands but, but you can kind of crawl out yourself. Really? So you're not no one? Or you are no one? Or what is this, you know? Are you not someone? Sure you are. It's talking about everybody. There's no inferior power that can steal you from the Lord, even yourself, if you're in Christ. That's how secure you are. You say, well, what if I decide I want to get out? Then you never were in. <laughs> that's, that's just the evidence. You never, if you want to get out, you never were in. If you say, I don't want anything to do with this Lord anymore. I don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ anymore. That, that's, that's just evidence that you've been, you were playing games and you were just going through religious motions. Fourth thing, the believer is secure because of the prayer of the Son. Not only the promise of the Son, but the prayer of the Son. And, two verses there in John chapter 17 that high priestly prayer that he prays for his disciples that are with him he prays for you and me it says in John 17 11 and 15 he said I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world and I come to you Holy Father keep them in your name the name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, to protect them, to guard them, to watch over them. I would just ask the simple question, and, and we could debate this, I suppose, if we wanted to, but are the prayers of Jesus answered? I mean, one of the caveats of Scripture is that for prayer to be answered, it has to be prayed in accordance with the will of God. And uh, I, I would say, well, is, is Jesus, does Jesus pray? Does he pray according to the will of God? Well, we know that he does. 
So I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I came to accomplish God's will. Everything he did was in the will of the Father. So what he prays is in accordance with God's will, and Jesus' prayers are answered. They're answered always. And this prayer, he's praying for you and me. John uh, 11, excuse me, John 11, 41 and 42, uh, which I thought I had on my sheet here, but I'll flip over to it right quick. He says, many came to him, were saying, while John, that's 10, excuse me, knew that didn't make sense. 11, uh, 42, he's talking there to Martha and Mary about Lazarus, and, and, and he says in 41, he said, so they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he was bound hand and foot, completely wrapped in grave clothes, came forth out of the grave alive. He said, listen, I pray so that you may hear, but Jesus always prays in the will of the Father, and his prayers are always answered. Or Paul in Romans 8, 34 he says, who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I don't know about you, but I find it kind of amazing and kind of comforting that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for you and me constantly as his disciples, as his family, as his brethren, and him our elder brother. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father praying, interceding, talking about your struggles and my struggles and your needs and my needs. And he's praying for us that we might be protected, the Father might keep us, and that we might be kept by the power of God. Quickly, the fifth thing, the believer is secure because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, in John 14, 16, and 17, uh, Jesus made clear that we can grieve the Spirit or we can even quench the Spirit. John 14, 16, and 17 say, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be with you. We have some security. We can be secure because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. Yes, we can quench Him and we can grieve Him, but we never can drive Him away. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 16, 8, 14 through 16. He says there, quite simply, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, 
by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. There is this promise of the Spirit that abides with us and in us forever, according to the Apostle Paul that protects us and guards us and keeps us continuously by his power. Or you could look in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, that, that great epistle to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. The picture there, you have been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise. The, the picture there being sealed is that there has been a seal placed on your life. You know what that seal says? That seal says, this is my son. This is my daughter. And they are sealed until the day of judgment, sealed until the day of redemption. And they belong to me. It's much like the Roman seal that would have been set in Paul's day upon anything that was guarded by and protected by the Roman government. They did that to the, to the, the, the grave, the tomb of Jesus that we talked about last week on Easter Sunday. They set a seal upon it. And it said, this, this is protected by Rome don't touch it and the seal of God by the Holy Spirit upon our life says this is protected by the Holy Spirit don't touch it don't try to destroy it and Satan recognizes that seal we are secure because of the presence of the Holy Spirit if we are believers are secure because of the possession of the new nature 2 Peter 1, 4 says we are partakers of the divine nature when we come to Christ. If you, if you look there at, at 2 Peter, Second Peter 1, 4 says, for, thee, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of of the divine nature doesn't mean you become God but you partake of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge in your knowledge self-control and your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brother, brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the possession of a new nature, we are changed people. And, and we live out a life that, that moves from, from where we were to a life of godliness, a life of holiness, a life that is a partaker of the divine nature. First. John 3 9 
in that great little book just toward the end of the of the New Testament that we looked at this morning uh, talking about they went out because they really weren't of us but John says in in 3 9 he says no one who is born of God practices sin it's an interesting statement because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God now you can wrestle with that one forever John is saying here that the seed of the Spirit, the seed, the possession of the new nature has been planted within us. And practicing sin is something that will not be a part of your life. You'll practice righteousness. You may fail and you may sin, but you will desire more than anything else in your life for righteousness to reign. And that's the clear teaching of the whole of Scripture. He abides us. John said, indicates that it continuously abides in us without end eternally. And then finally, the believer is secure because of the reconciliation. Because of his reconciliation. Again, you go back to Romans chapter 5, that great passage. Romans chapter 5, where it says that God reconciled us to himself while we were yet sinners 5 9 through 11 much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life and not only this but we also exalt in God we also exult rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have we, we have now received the reconciliation you see the picture in scripture from Genesis 3 on from the fall of Adam and Eve our, our parents our initial original parents from Genesis 3 on there is, there is a separation there is a gap. There is a enmity. There is a fight. There is a war. And we're separated from God by our sin. But in Christ, there is now a reconciliation. You've been reconciled. You've been adopted, Paul says, into his family. You've been given a new nature. You've been given the Holy Spirit to protect you and guard you. I mean, on you've been given the promise by the Lord Jesus that you will, he will never let you go. You belong to him. He's paid the price and he has bought you. I mean, and on and on and on, you go back over that and you see the power of God, the power of his reconciliating, reconciling power to bring us to faith in Christ. It is a work of God. It is a magnificent work of God whereby we can rest secure. Now, that security ought not lead to laziness, it ought not lead to saying, well, then I don't, I don't have to worry about anything, man. I can go out and do whatever I want to do because you know, I'm saved. I'm, I'm secure. I'm protected. It ought not make for sloppiness in the Christian life. It ought to lead for, to, to diligence, which is what Peter said. It ought to make us more diligent, knowing that our Lord, our Savior, loves us that much, is not only saved us through the cross by his blood, 
but he is protecting us he is guarding us he is caring for us every single day I don't know about you but that makes me want to worship him that makes me want to honor him that makes me want to live a life in his strength in his power that is pleasing to him in every single way we are guarded we are protected if we are in him we have eternal life that is a life of knowing him and he'll never let us go never let us go how wonderful and how glorious is that let's pray Father, we are grateful to you that all the truth of Scripture is ours to understand and to rest in. Father, confirm that in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits. Even this week, help us, Lord, to share that truth with somebody. Share the gospel with people that they might know you might abide in you thank you father for your work in our lives pray in jesus name